0: You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Extended.
1: Hi, this is Peter Johnson from aerospace radio station Extended. And we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's he's
0: been something of of an unsung hero of the American space programme, outside those who have made it their business to become aficionados of it.
1: News. Some people will call you mad, some people will call you heroes, uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's it's an amazing project to, to pull together from literally from scratch. Views. You've got to pick yourself
0: up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure.
1: So why not give us a listen? If you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry, come over and give us a visit.
0: Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. 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 (laughs) Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand Show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand Show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, I've pulled out one of my old interviews It was done way back in early 2010 with the late Sid Vincent. Sid was a Londoner who served with the Royal Navy Fleet Air Arm in World War II, and he flew as the telegrapher air gunner in Grumman Avengers. After the war, he came to New Zealand and joined the Royal New Zealand Air Force. This is Sid's story.
1: I retired from the war as a Petty Officer uh, with a f- number like FAA, which is Fleet Air Arm, FX-96593 and uh, I was very fortunate because I became a pe- one badge Petty Officer by the time I was 21, but that was where the war ended. So, <laughs> And I was in Australia, uh, my, my full name is Sydney Vincent. Um, which was the very place I was posted to when I, or HMS St Vincent, when I joined the Royal Navy. Uh, I might say that I joined the Royal Navy because uh, I am a Londoner and uh, at age 16 onwards I was doing fire watching and I really didn't like being bombed so <laughs> I joined the, uh, I thought, well, I'll go and drop bombs on somebody else and uh, i was lucky enough uh, through the air training corps uh, to be selected for the fleet air arm however because of educational problems or the sort of people you meet it's rather difficult with the rm um, they just offered me a telegraph stear gunner and uh, i went to hms st vincent uh, with everybody else Uh, we did our pre training and from there I was selected to go to Canada for training in Nova Scotia and from there I went straight to a Grumman Avenger squadron number 849 uh, and I did a full operational tour with them which at that stage was 18 months. Now that 18 months was taken up by conversion to aircraft. Uh, going around the various stations in Scotland for fighter avoidance, bombing, torpedo, anti submarine work, and so forth. And at that stage, we finished in April 1944, we were posted down to an RF station in Cornwall uh, for. Uh, the invasion of Normandy, which we didn't know anything about at the time, but we were there. Uh, The object, of course, was to make sure that the English Channel was completely clear of German EW and R boats. So we did quite a lot of patrols, and uh, we attacked the odd piece of shipping here and there. Uh, And uh, we had a bird's eye view of the... uh, Invasion, which is uh, not many people's privilege, really, and uh, and we saw it from a safe distance, you know, about 3,000 feet And uh, all the invasion uh, ships were sort of lined up like soldiers uh, just going across there. So that that, that was quite an experience. Uh, After the invasion was well underway... They wanted the small station that we had, RF Peramporth, uh, for uh, fighters again. So we were pulled out to St Evel and uh, the, the, the Spitfires went back in again. Uh, we spent something like another six or eight weeks at St Evil. And uh, then we uh, had a new commanding officer uh, and a new task ahead, and uh, we then went on to what we called a wars carrier. And we went out to uh, Cincomalee in Ceylon. And that that, that would be about September 40.
0: What was the carrier?
1: I've forgotten the name of it now The K-dive I believe K-dive. Very very comfortable I might say The uh, American Wars carrier But a bit high out the water when the, wa- when the weather's rough But we did no flying from it We were just uh, taking the aircraft out to uh, uh, Ceylon Anyway we took the aircraft off a place called Coimbatore in uh, uh, Madras, and uh, then flew them onto Ceylon uh, to Catacaranda Katakur- to, uh, and we spent something like three or four months there, uh, forming up. Uh, we expanded the squadron from what was originally twelve aircraft to twenty-one aircraft, so that's an increase, big increase in personnel as well. And we will be the complete complement for a fleet carrier. Uh, round about no December, uh, just before Christmas, I think it was, we flew aboard the uh, HMS Victorious, um, and we had with us. Uh two Corsair squadrons eighteen thirty four and eighteen thirty six so we made up the complete complement. We did quite a bit of rehearsing with other carriers, um the illustrious formidable indomitable you name it and um, in large formation flying and large larger bombing attacks and we used Colombo as our target in practising and forming up. So it took us a little while for all the ships to get their act together. And then we did our first strike against uh, an oil refinery in Sumatra uh, called Pankham Brandon. Uh, One thing, the Americans did try to destroy them from the air. But they were unsuccessful because by the time their uh, bombers flew the full length of uh, Burma, and they had to fight their way all the way because the Japanese were there, they were pretty well exhausted. And they, from the great heights that they dropped their bombs, and this precision bombsight isn't as precise as one would hope or the word implies. Uh, they didn't really do a great deal of damage. And uh, they came to the cons- solution that the best way to be- get accuracy is to fly straight at the target and release the bomb. So we, were, we weren't we were quite dive bombers. We only went 45, 50 degrees, but it was close enough. Uh, and the, the Jap- Japanese, of course relied on Sinatra very much for oil supplies, particularly aviation. So uh, they had to be destroyed. And uh, who should they pick but us? <laughs> and so we set out with, well, I'm not sure, whether it three or four carriers. We did Pelangal and Brandon <coughs> first, uh, which was close to the coast. Uh, so in and out of that and back back into Ceylon again and uh, then we came out with an extra carrier and uh, we did uh, the oil refiner at Palembang. Now this is a different kettle of fish because we had to fly across the full width of Sumatra which has a high range of mountains and of course you couldn't have complete surprise when you're flying over land. So we knew we would be picked up by radar and we knew that the chances of being attacked were very, very good. When we arrived over the target, um, the weather was good. That's one of the things that you can never count on, that you'll get a clear target. You often have to go for a secondary one. But anyway, we got a clear target, and uh, in we went. Uh, to our surprise, they had balloons there, which they uh, raised as we d- dived, and of course we were attacked by fighters all the way through. Uh, and uh, we did two two such raids, uh, three 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 days apart, um, and. Our casualty rate, of course, was very high. Uh, on the second raid, we lost, of the 12 aircraft we sent, two were shot down over the target, uh, and two limped back and had to ditch, uh, and one of the observers uh, died in the ditching. Um, from there, we then went on to Sydney and uh, formed up what became known as the British Pacific Fleet. Uh, I I must say that the Australians made us most welcome. Um, From our point of view, coming from England uh, and Ceylon, where pleasures are few and far between, Sydney was a, a delightful place to be. Anyway, we spent about two weeks replacing our aircraft and brushing up and then we set out again and went up north uh, first of all to uh, Manus Islands where we regrouped and then we um, flew on or went on to the uh, for the Okinawa campaign Uh, we had uh, Quite a hectic time. Uh, What what happened almost as we joined was that kamikazes uh, came into being. Uh, and uh, We we had pretty decent fighter squadrons there and we had good radar and most of them were intercepted at great range and shot down. Some of them got through. Um, We were doing scheduled to do something like four or five raids a day when we were in the operational zone. And we were in the oper- operational zone for two days and then we withdrew for re-oiling, re re in general. Two days out and then we go back for another two days. And this went on for about three months so it was very very tiresome. The only good thing about it that was that I saved a bit of money. <laughs> there was no way to spend it. But uh, we had a, a slow and continuous casualty rate. Our targets were nearly always airfields because we wanted to put the airfields out of action so that their kamikazes couldn't refuel. Uh, if they had a long way to fly to the target, then of course they had to carry a much smaller bomb load. So um, our task was fairly important. But the other thing too was that we were fitted with steel decks and uh, whereas American carriers uh, if they were hit by a kamikaze it would go straight to the wooden flight deck and explode in the hangar and the consequences were fairly very very considerable for them. Uh, I came back one day from a raid uh, and the red alert was on, the ship was under attack and we watched our own ship being hit twice. One glanced and went over the side and the other one hit the gun turret. Uh, The result was that they cleaned things up and we were delayed by something like 30 minutes on landing on and then it was business as usual. Uh, th- 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 that particular bomb did hit the uh, gun turret and killed uh, sort of six, six of the seamen. You know. But uh, that's the way it goes. And then eventually, uh, when we'd done our time up there, we came back to Sydney again. A long time, we'd been away nearly six months at sea, um, or four months at sea, and uh, I'd finished my operational tour, so I was posted from there. Uh, I was to do six months in Australia, then I would go back again for another 18 months. Well, what happened, of course, is they dropped the atomic bomb in between time, so my services were no longer required, (laughs) and that was it.
0: Um, Can you tell me a little bit about uh,
1: your New Zealand crew? Right at the beginning, I I was assigned to a crew uh, whose skipper was uh, Don Fitzpatrick. Uh, He was well-known, well-liked chap, and uh, I must say, we got on right away. Uh, Some of the chaps who were the, the straight RN people had a difficult time, this officer, other ranks relationship. We never did have that. Uh, <clears throat> we remained friends right through life. Of course I had to respect him as an officer uh, he sleep him first time, first thing in the morning <laughs> and last thing at night but we broke down to Christian names uh, during the day uh, and I was with him right up until uh, we got to Sydney on the first trip and then he went back to uh, New Zealand on his three months' leave. And I, I passed over to uh, another New Zealander, Horry Stalker, who uh, died at Rotorua some six months ago. Um, Don Fitzpatrick died just over a year ago at Caron. So I succeeded them. but I, uh, well, uh, it was probably one of the reasons why I came to live in New Zealand, uh, because I knew them and got along well. And after the war, it's a question of resettling, finding a new job, uh, what you're content with and things like that. And I came to the conclusion that I wasn't getting very far. Uh, you know, whatever job you took was the same amount of money for... A, Probably a more tedious job. So anyway, I like the service, so I thought, well, I'd give the Royal New Zealand Air Force a go. And, uh, well, really, uh, for anybody joining the service, they will know that uh, it's progressive. And uh, even though you might only be promoted in small doses, it is progressive. And um, it gets better and better as the years go on. Uh, I have no regrets about being in the air force at all. Uh, I had s- 20 years of the here. and when I retired from that, uh, the RAF offered me a six-year short service commission. So I took the whole family back to uh, England. The go- girls went to boarding school and did everything English-like, you know. And then, when I finished my six years, we came back.
0: Can you tell the story of the Bristol Freighter crash? I'm really interested in that.
1: Well, when I first uh, went on to Bristol Freighters, I was single. (laughs) Um, And uh, we had two last Bristol Freighters to pick up. And so three crews went back to England in one Bristol freighter, which I might say takes 13 days and 21 legs. And so it's hard work and very tiresome with a day off in Singapore and uh, a day off in Cyprus. Quite different from today's flying when you can hack the whole lot in uh, 24 hours. We only did 125 knots and uh, each day was divided in two legs because we had... Limited endurance. Anyway, I came back with the aircraft we went in, uh, and um, before I came back, I got married. So that that, that was uh, a big event for me, and uh, so we set off, and exactly seven days after my marriage. The aircraft was pranked in uh, Moripur in Pakistan, so the uh, marriage went off from a bad start. <laughs> so from then, I made sure I was well insured, <laughs> Well, my wife did. <laughs> so uh, anyway, the, uh, we arrived in uh, Moripur, and uh, just not not far from Karachi. Uh, and there had been a dust dust storm blowing away and they gave us uh, 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 an extra 20 degrees uh, side wind bunged on because of some misunderstanding on the direction of the runway. Anyway the pilot tried to land and then decided he shouldn't land so went to abandon it and then changed his mind again and we finished up by hitting a monsoon ditch and uh, I didn't see much of it actually uh, but uh, with the Bristol freighter the oleo supports the engine so once you the wheel went into the monsoon ditch the whole thing came down because it, it, there was nothing to stop it. It's just a, The Bristol freighter was just a shell, uh, and there's the oleo support of the engines, which are pretty heavy. It smashed. Well, <clears throat> in consequence of that, um, I came back to New Zealand, and uh, of course I'd, I then had to get permission to get married. Which <laughs> which was putting things a cart before the horse, really, but anyway, they all thought it was very funny, and they ra- arranged for my wife to come out. And then the next thing they arranged for me was to go back with an all-NCO crew to pick up the pieces in Pakistan and fly them back to the Bristol Aeroplane Company. Uh, the Bristol Aeroplane Company uh, then proceeded to put them together, but it's a long way between Karachi and... Uh, uh, the Bristol Aeroplane Company and in between time my, my new wife has been uh, assigned for the Captain Cook to come out to New Zealand so she arrived in New Zealand while I was still overseas which is all very difficult but the uh, other crew members sort of uh, their wives sort of picked her up and looked after her until we eventually came back.
0: So the, the wreckage was taken back to England? The the wreckage was taken back to England. Well, when
1: I say the wreckage, uh, the two things that were uh, compact were the two engines. Uh, There's nothing wrong with them, really. Uh, And one engine is sufficient payload for one trip. Uh, And the third trip was uh, really for all the fins and bits that could be salvaged, all the radio instruments and stuff. Uh, it, it was really the shell that had, of the aircraft that had broken away completely. So they put all the, uh, the Bristol aeroplane put it all together again, and it, it, it was zero one when we took it out, and it was zero one when it came back. And unfortunately, that same aircraft crashed in uh, Malaysia some I don't know about twelve months later, and. Uh, a large number of people were killed on it, mm-hmm. including the squadron leader Thai uh, at the time. Uh,
0: so when it came back as 01, it was really a different airframe with the components put on Oh, it. oh yes. yeah,
1: It was a brand new aeroplane but with the engine. Uh, there was nothing wrong with it at all. No. Um, uh, very good aircraft. Uh,
0: and all the bits that you didn't take from Maripor, were, were they just scrapped on site, or?
1: Oh yes. Um, w- what we found with the Bristol Aeroplane Company—they were very good. They wanted to put on a big party for my marriage, you know, but I wouldn't have it because they're all Pakistanis there at the time. <laughs> I didn't think it'd go down it too well. But uh, the Pakistanis bought a very large number of Bristol Frasers, which they used for or twin-engine conversion for navigation, for for all general things. But they pranged quite a lot trying to turn around in the Khyber Pass in many (laughs) cases, I think. But but, uh, what it did mean, that, dealing with being in Pakistan, we could get um, all the assistance required as far as maintaining the aircraft was concerned.
0: So where was that Bristol Airplane Company based then?
1: At Filton in Bristol. Right. Uh, Filton was the longest airship in the world at that time because they, with the Bristol freighter, they developed the Britannia and at that time they had a tremendous aircraft, I think it had about six engines, called the Brabazon, uh, which they built and they flew, but they decided in the end it wouldn't be a commercial success. And so the Britannia came out of out of that. Mm.
0: And who was the pilot that actually um, crashed it? Who was the pilot?
1: Who that I went back with?
0: No, no. In the actual crash, the initial crash. Who was the pilot on that?
1: I'd rather not say. Oh, okay. I'd rather not say. Yeah. Um. Uh, the crew I went back went back with was very good because we were an all NCO crew, and uh, we get on very well together. And,
0: and that was the crew that had Sandy Curry in it.
1: Yeah, yes, yeah. had yeah. Sandy Curry was, was with us with that. He 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 fixed all, fixed everything up in Karachi so that when we came back, everything was ready. Right. You know, he was very good. Mm.
0: So was he a flight engineer then? Back then, mm. was he a flight engineer then, or? No, no, he
1: was uh, an airframe fit- fitter. Oh, okay. Corporal. Mm-mm.
0: Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, actually, just going back now to the fleet air arm, which we've gone <laughs> well yeah, away yeah, from, yeah. Um, I was thinking, can you tell me a little bit about um, being an air gunner on the um, Avenger? What was it like flying along in these things? Was it a good aircraft to be a gunner on? or?
1: Oh, yes. Yes. Um, For one thing, all the aircraft before had 0.3 Brownings or uh, Vickers Gas Operator. Very ineffective, really. Uh, But in the Avenger, we had a 0.5 Browning. And, of course, that has a lot of punch and uh, a lot of range. Uh, So um, you could get a beam on an attacking aircraft Uh, and give it a couple of short bursts and see exactly where it's going. You've got to remember that with an aircraft that's lining up on a bomber, uh, in order to get into its uh, fire cone, it's got to turn full on with full wings. So it takes a little time for it to turn around. That's the time when the air gunner, with with, with the uh, controls of the turret, it's only a question of moving the hand and pulling the trigger, and the whole thing works. And you can get ahead of it quite easily. It's not very comfortable, I must say that. It's, uh, in all my experience in flying, that was a moment, the moment where uh, it was really tense and uh, fearful. Uh, just a, a brief moment, but it's a great relief when uh, you come out of it all. Isn't it?
0: how often did you have to actually fight off um, uh, attacks like that then?
1: Oh, well, the only ones where we encountered fighters, um, I saw one when we were in Normandy, he looked at us, didn't know what we were and he went back the other way and so I was quite pleased about that one. The other ones were really in Palembang. And, and uh, they were army air, aircraft and they were out in force. Uh, fortunately, we had good fighter protection and uh, good cover. Uh, but m- m- most of our aircraft that were shot down were shot down m- m- mainly by uh, low anti aircraft fire when we came out of the dive. Got to remember, we we, we go in it, you arrive over the target at about 9,000 feet uh, and then you glide round to about six or 7,000 feet and position the aircraft so that in relation to the target by that time you've identified the target or the pilot has and has got, got to uh, make his uh, attack accordingly then he dives uh, and it's a slow dive, and of course you've got the uh, anti-aircraft fire, and the aircraft on your tail, the balloons coming up, and, and the, the balloons are no problem. It's the cable that um, that you can't see, and of course it's it's not di- a, a direct line; it's it sags, so you don't see the cable until you're on top of it. If you see it at all. And uh, we suspect that's how we lost our two aircraft through, through cables. Uh, don't know. Nobody really... You're, you're so interested in your, your own predicament at the time that you don't really get a clear, clear view of what, what's happening to other aircraft. You've got to remember that in the whole formation, there was something like in excess of uh, 48, 50 German Avengers, And then, of course, we'd have about a hundred fighters in various ways, in top cover and middle cover, and uh, those that went out and did strikes before we got there. You know, Uh, so apart from the Avengers, we had the Fireflies as well, which uh, uh, had jet um, uh, rockets. You know, which they uh, attacked the. uh, target with, but they could go in real low, low, you know.
0: Hmm. Um, And what about life on board the carrier, you know, when you're off duty, but on the carrier, what was that like? Well, well,
1: uh, the air gunners all lived in one mess. Uh, So we lived in fairly close proximity to each other. Uh, We slept in hammocks those that could find hammock hooks. (laughs) Otherwise, you just laid your hammock out on the deck and slept on the deck. Uh, The metal deck, the steel deck of the carrier, had one disadvantage, was that it made the whole carrier rather hot. And British warships in those days weren't really built for comfort, you know. So so it was really uh, warm and uncomfortable. But all our... Most of our flying, we took off at crack of dawn, you know, uh, and uh, tried to get in the element of surprise as we could. Uh, of course, we had uh, uh, the chap Admiral Vane, who was uh, in charge of all the carriers at the time, uh, and. I, I, I think he knew what he was doing. <laughs> you know, had that, that sort of confidence.
0: What was the food like on the carrier?
1: <laughs> that's why you have a tot of rum. <laughs> Otherwise you wouldn't eat it. <laughs> and, uh, um, some, some, when you're at action stations, um, that's the two days when you're in the zone, you make do with the... A hot sausage and a slice of bread, or you, you know, you, you get by. Uh, when you're out of the zone, then of course you get more regular messing and uh, it's brought round. But uh, one thing about the Navy, you could always be sure of having a meal. It may not be too hard, <laughs> but uh, you, you always eat, uh, you know, as opposed to the captain in the army. They, could eat where they could, when they could, and if they could. The interesting thing I found with the Fleet Air Arm, uh, it's a bit like the RNZAF. We have a sort of a Fleet Air Arm family, you know? And a lot of the chaps, when they came back from the war, they got together, formed the Fleet Air Arm Association. Uh, They were all single when they came back and they got married one at a time and children came along and they had Christmas parties and all the things. So uh, you had a very good relationship after the war with those people. although A lot of them would live a long way away from each other, but the Fleet Air Arm has a a very good family and we have good contact with the uh, people in England. I belong to uh, the Telegraphist Air Gunners Association uh, and they always have three or four good dues a year. So if, they, if I'm there at the time, I, 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 I join in with them. Um, and the same applies to the RNZAF. For the people that were there when I was there, uh, we keep in close contact. That was the Wings Over New Zealand Show with Dave Homewood.